Chapter Eighteen of the Literary Sense by Edith Nesbit. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Capricia Page. The Literary Sense by Edith Nesbit. Chapter Eighteen. THE LOVE OF ROMANCE She opened the window, at which no light shone. All the other windows were darkly shuttered. The night was still. Only a faint breath moved among the restless aspen leaves. The ivy round the window whispered hoarsely as the casement, swung back too swiftly, rested against it. She had a large linen sheet in her hand. Without hurrying, and without delays, she knotted one corner of it to the iron staple of the window. She tied the knot firmly, and further secured it with string. She let the bulk of the sheet fall between the ivy and the night. Then she climbed on to the window ledge, and crouched there on her knees. There was a heart-sick pause before she grasped the long twist of the sheet as it hung, let her knees slip from the supporting stone, and swung suddenly by her hands. Her elbows and wrists were grazed against the rough edge of the window ledge. The sheet twisted at her weight, and jarred her shoulder heavily against the house wall. Her arms seemed to be tearing themselves from their sockets. But she clenched her teeth, felt with her feet for the twisted ivy stems on the side of the house, found foothold, and the moment of almost unbearable agony was over. She went down, helped by feet and hands, and by ivy and sheet, almost exactly as she had planned to do. She had not known it would hurt so much. That was all. Her feet felt for the soft mound of the border. A stout geranium snapped under her tread. She crept round the house. In the house's shadow found the gardener's ladder. And so on to the high brick wall. From this she dropped, deftly enough, into the suburban lane dropped, too, into the arms of a man who was waiting there. She hid her face in his neck, trembling, and said, Oh, Harry, I wish I hadn't. Then she began to cry helplessly. The man, receiving her embrace with what seemed, in the circumstances of a singularly moderated enthusiasm, led her with one arm still round her shoulders down the lane. At the corner he stood still and said in a low voice, "'Hush! Stop crying at once. I've something to say to you.' She tore herself from his arm and gasped. "'It's not Harry!' she said. "'Oh, how dare you!' She had been brave till she dropped into his arms. Then the need for bravery had seemed over. Now her tears were 
dried swiftly and suddenly by the blaze of anger and courage in her eyes. "'Don't be unreasonable,' he said, and even at that moment of disappointment and rage his voice pleased her. "'I had to get you away somehow. I couldn't risk an explanation right under your aunt's windows.' Harry sprained his knee. Cricket. He couldn't come. A sharp resentment stirred in her against the lover who could play cricket on the very day of an elopement. He told you to come? Oh, how could he betray me? My dear girl, what was he to do? He couldn't leave you to wait out here alone, perhaps for hours. I shouldn't have waited long, she said sharply. You came to tell me? Now you've told me. You better go. Look here, he said with gentle calm. I do wish you'd try not to be quite so silly. I'm Harry's doctor, and a middle-aged man. Let me help you. There must be some better way out of your troubles than a midnight flight and a despairingly defiant note on a pincushion. I didn't, she said. I put it on the mantelpiece. Please go. I decline to discuss anything with you. Ah, oh, don't, he said. I knew you must be a rather romantic person, or you wouldn't be here. And I knew you must be rather still, well, rather young, or you wouldn't have fallen in love with Harry. And I did not think, after the brave and practical manner in which you kept your appointment, I did not think that you'd try to behave like a heroine of a family novelette. Come, sit down on this heap of stones. There's nobody about. There's a light in your house now. You can't go back yet. Here, let me put my Inverness around you. Keep it round your chin, and then if anyone sees you they won't know who you are. I can't leave you alone here. You know what a lot of robberies there have been in the neighborhood lately. There may be rough characters about. Come now, let's think what's to be done. You know you can't get back unless I help you. I don't want you to help me, and I won't go back, she said. But she sat down and pulled the cloak up around her face. Now, he said, as I understand the case, it's this. You live a rather dull life with your two tyrannical aunts and the passion for romance. They're not tyrannical. Only one's always ill and the other's always nursing her. She makes her get up and read to her in the night. That's her light you saw. Well, I passed the aunts. Anyway, I met you met Harry somehow. It was at the Coral Society, and then they stopped my going, because he walked home with me one wet night. And you have never met each other since? Of course we have. And have communicated by some means more romantic than post? It wasn't romantic. It was tennis balls. Tennis balls? You cut a slit and squeeze it and put a note in, and it shuts up and no one notices. It wasn't romantic at all, and 
I don't know why I should tell you anything about it. And then, I suppose, there were glances in church and stolen meetings and the passionate hush of a rose-scented garden. There's nothing in the garden but geraniums, she said, and we always talked over the wall. He used to stand on their chicken-house, and I used to turn the dog-kennel up on end and stand on that. You have no right to know anything about it. But it was not in the least romantic. No, that sees itself. May I ask whether it was you or he who proposed the elopement? Oh, how dare you! she said, jumping up. You have no right to insult me like this. He caught her wrist. Sit down, you little firebrand, he said. I gather it was he proposed it. You, at any rate, consented, no doubt, after the regulation amounts of proper scruples. It's all very charming and idyllic, and what are you crying for? Your lost hopes of a happy life with a boy you know nothing of, a boy you've hardly seen, a boy you've never talked to about anything but love's young dreams. I'm not crying, she said passionately, turning her streaming eyes on him. You know I'm not, or if I am, it's only with rage. You may be a doctor, though I don't believe you are, but you're not a gentleman, not anything like one. I suppose not, he said. A gentleman would not make conditions. I'm going to make one. You can't go to Harry, because his mother would be seriously annoyed if you did. And so, believe me, would he, though you don't think it. You can get up and leave me and go away into the night like a heroine of fiction, but you can't keep on going away into the night for ever and ever. You must have food and clothes and lodging, and the sun rises every day. You must just quietly and dully go home again, and you can't do it without me. And I'll help you if you promise not to see Harry or write to him for a year. He'll see me. He'll write to me, she said with proud triumph. I think not. I exacted the promise from him as a condition of my coming to meet you. And he promised? Evidently. There was a long silence. She broke it with a voice of concentrated fury. If he doesn't mind, I don't, she said. I'll promise. Now let me go back. I wish you hadn't come. I wish I were dead. Come, he said. Don't be so angry with me. I've done what I could for you both. On conditions? You must see that they are good, or you wouldn't have accepted them so soon. I thought it would have taken me at least an hour to get you to consent, but no. Ten minutes of earnest reflection are enough to settle the luckless Harry's little hash. You are quite right. He doesn't deserve more. I'm pleased with myself, I own. I must have a very convincing manner. Oh, she cried passionately, I dare say you think you have been very clever. But I wish you knew what I think of you. And I tell you for twopence. I'm a poor man, gentle lady. Won't you tell me for love? His voice was soft and pleading beneath the laugh that stung her. 
"'Yes, I will tell you for nothing,' she cried. "'You're a brute, and a hateful, interfering, disagreeable, impertinent old thing, and I only hope you'll have someone be as horrid to you as you've been to me. That's all.' "'I think I've had that already, quite as horrid,' he said grimly. "'This is not the moment for compliments. But you have great powers. You are brave.' and I never met anyone who could be more horrid, as you call it, in a smaller compass, all with this tiny adjective. My felicitations, you are clever. Come, don't be angry any more. I had to do it. You'll understand some day. You wouldn't like it yourself, she said, softening to something in his voice. I shouldn't have liked it at your age, she said. Sixteen, fifteen, what is it? I'm nineteen, next birthday, she said with dignity. And the date? The 15th of June. I don't know what you mean by asking me. And today's the 1st of July, he said, and sighed. Well, well, if your highness will allow me, I'll go and see whether your aunt's light is out, and if it is, we'll attempt the re-entrance. He went. She shivered, waiting for what felt like hours and the resentment against her aunts grew faint in the light of her resentment against her lover's messenger, and this, in its turn, was outshone by her anger against her lover. He had played cricket. He had risked his life on the very day whose evening should have crowned that life by giving her to his arms. She set her teeth. Then she yawned and shivered again. It was an English July, and very cold and the slow minutes crept past. What a fool she had been! Why had she not made a flight for her liberty, for her right to see Harry if she chose to see him? The aunts would never have stood up against a well-planned, determined, disagreeable resistance. In the light of this doctor's talk, the whole thing did seem cowardly, romantic, and worst of all, insufferably young. Well, tomorrow everything should change. She would fight for her love, not merely run away to him. But the promise? Well, Harry was Harry, and a promise was only a promise. There were footsteps in the lane. The man was coming back to her. She rose. It's all right, he said. Come. In silence they walked down the lane. Suddenly he stopped. You'll thank me some day, he said. Why should you throw yourself away on Harry? You're worth fifty of him, and I only wish I had time to explain this to you thoroughly, but I haven't. She, too, stopped. Now she stamped her foot. Look here, she said. I'm not going to promise anything at all. You needn't help me if you don't want to. But I take back that promise. Go. Do what you like. I mean to stick to Harry, and I'll write and tell him so tonight. So there. He clapped his hands very softly. "'Bravo!' he said. "'That's the right spirit. Plucky child. Any other girl would have broken the promise without a word to me. Harry's luckier even than I thought. I'll help you, little champion. Come on.' He helped her over the wall, carried the ladder to her window, and steadied it while she mounted it. When she had climbed over the window ledge, 
She turned and leaned out the window to see him slowly mounting the ladder. He threw his head back with a gesture that meant, I have something more to say, lean out. She leaned out. His face was on the level with hers. You slept soundly all night. Don't forget that. It's important, he whispered. And you needn't tell Harry. One-sided things are so trivial. But I can't help it. I have the passion for romance, too. With that he caught her neck in the curve of his arm, and kissed her lightly but fervently. Good-bye, he said. Thank you so much for a very pleasant evening. He dropped from the ladder and was gone. She drew her curtain with angry suddenness. Then she lighted a candle and looked at herself in the looking-glass. She thought she had never looked so pretty. And she was right. Then she went to bed and slept like a tired baby. The next morning the suburb was electrified by the discovery made by the nursing aunt that all the silver and jewels and valuables from the safe at the top of the stairs had vanished. "'The villains must have come through your window, child,' she said to Harry's sweetheart. "'The ladder proves that. Slept sound all night, did you? Well, that was a mercy.' They might have murdered you in your bed if you'd happened to be awake. You ought to be humbly thankful when you think of what might have happened. The girl did not think very much of what might have happened. What had happened gave her quite food enough for reflection, especially when to her side of the night's adventures she added the tale of Harry's. He had not played cricket. He had not hurt his knee. He had merely confided in his father's valet, and had given that unprincipled villain a five-pound note to be at the crossroads in the orthodox style, with a cab, for the flight, a post-chase being, alas, out of date. Instead of doing this, the valet, with a confederate, had gagged and bound young Harry, and set him in a convenient corner against the local waterworks to await events. I never would have believed it of him, added Harry, in an agitated India rubber-ball note. He always seems such a superior person. He always seems such a superior person. You'd have thought he was a gentleman if you'd met him in any other position. I should. I did, she said to herself. And oh, how frightfully clever. And the way he talked. And all the time he was only keeping me out of the way while they stole the silver and things. I wish he hadn't taken the ruby necklace. It did suit me so. And what nerve! He actually talked about the robberies in the neighborhood. He must have done them all. Oh, what a pity! But he was a dear, and how awfully wicked he was, too. But I'll never tell Harry. She never has. Curiously enough, her burglar valet hero was not caught, though the police most intelligently traced his career, from his being sent down from Oxford to his last best burglary. She was married to Harry, with the complete consent of everyone concerned, for Harry had money, and so had she, and there had never been the slightest need for an elopement save in youth's perennial passion for romance. It was on her birthday that she received a registered postal packet. It had a good many queer postmarks on it, and the stamps 
were those of a South American Republic. It was addressed to her by her new name, which was as good as a new still. It came at breakfast time, and it contained a ruby necklace, several gold rings, and a diamond brooch. All were the property of her late aunts. Also there was an India rubber ball, and in it a letter. Here is a birthday present for you, it said. Try to forgive me. Some temptations are absolutely irresistible. That one was, and it was worth it. It rounded off the whole thing so perfectly. That last indiscretion of mine nearly ruined everything. There was a policeman in the lane. I only escaped by the merest fluke. But even then, it would have been worth it. At least, I should like you to believe that I think so. His last indiscretion, said Harry, who saw the note, but not the India rubber ball. That means stealing your aunt's things, of course, unless it was dumping me down by the waterworks, but of course, that wasn't the last one. But worth it. Why, he'd have had seven years if they'd caught him worth it. He must have a passion for burglary. She did not explain to Harry, because he would never have understood. But the burglar would have found it quite easy to understand that, or anything. She was so shocked to find herself thinking this, that she went over to Harry and kissed him with more affection even than usual. "'Yes, dear,' he said. "'I don't wonder you're pleased to get something back of all those things. I quite understand.' "'Yes, dear,' she said. "'I know. You always do.'" End of chapter 18 Recording by Capricia Page End of the Literary Sense by Edith Nesbitt